0: Well, it's good. It's good to be with you all. Um, we are on uh, baby watch, so if I disappear, it's because Kelly started waving at me and we had to go. Um, but if that doesn't happen, then I've got a sermon that I can't wait to share with you all. And uh, for the campuses, so good to be with you. Waterford, Lake Mary, Lake Mary, I'm, I'm going to be teaching a Reconstructing Evangelism class uh, in at the end of October that I hope uh, you'll be a part of, so I can't wait to be with you guys. And to the men and women at 33rd Street, always great to be with you, and just want you to know uh, we continue. To pray for you because I know uh, you are in a tough place. But we're so glad that you're part of our church. And uh, and as we've as we've gone through this series on how to make a friend, we've really been looking at kind of the importance of it and how oftentimes friendship isn't necessary. But the Bible makes it very clear that it's important. That we actually can't be all that God designed us to be without it. And so we've been studying that. We've been looking at its importance. We've been looking at What what do we need to be in order to be the kind of friend that God had in mind when He thought up friendship? So tonight, today, I want us to end our time together looking at what do we need to do if we find ourselves in a situation where there needs to be repair? What does it look like to repair a broken relationship? Last week, we said friendship starts with you, not someone else. And really, it's the same with repairing broken relationships. Relational repair starts with you, not someone else. It doesn't matter who's to blame for the fracture in the relationship. If you want it repaired, it starts with you, it doesn't start with someone else. Now, that's a really hard statement, especially if you're the one who's been wronged. Now, if if it's your sin, if it's your sin that's the primary cause for the fracture, uh, let me just say to you go and ask forgiveness. Like, stop waiting. Just go and, and get that ball rolling. Go ahead and, and apologize. Don't let any more time pass. But if you're waiting for an apology, the challenge that we're all going to hear tonight from God's Word is much more difficult. And so I'm, I'm not going to be straight with you guys. It's, it, this isn't like a fun, like what we're going to talk about isn't going to be fun. And in fact, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, do you all remember Mandisa from American Idol? I don't know when, what season she was on, but, uh, but she's always kind of stood out to me. I've always remembered her. And, and the reason is when she auditioned for American Idol, she walked out onto the stage and, and she's a, a larger woman, larger than most of the other contestants that try out for American Idol. And Simon looked at the other judges and said so that she could hear, do we have a bigger stage this year? Now, a couple of days later, when Mandisa walked into the judge's room uh, to learn her fate on the show, whether or not she was going to make it to Hollywood, before they told her, before they said anything, she looked directly at Simon, and she said this to him. Simon, a lot of people want me to say a lot of things to you. But this is what I want to say. Yes, you hurt me, and I cried, and it was painful. But I want you to know that I've forgiven you and that you don't need someone to apologize to forgive somebody. And I figured that if Jesus could die so that all my wrongs could be forgiven, I can certainly extend that same grace to you. I wanted you to know that." And of course Simon did apologize and they hugged and Mandisa made it to Hollywood. Relational repair starts with you, not someone else. You don't have to wait for someone else to apologize to begin the journey of repairing what's been broken. So now, how do we do that? Well, we've been looking at the book of Proverbs throughout this whole series, and so I want to continue to look at Proverbs and see what kind of wisdom we can get as to what we're called to in the repairing of a relationship. And in your bulletin, there should be three verses listed, and these are really where I'm getting the bulk of what we're going to talk about tonight. But from these three verses, I see three things. That we need to do, that we're being called to do when it comes to repairing a relationship. We must resist superiority, we must release from liability, and we must repay evil with good. Resist, release, and repay. See what I did there? All right, let's look at them. First step: first step is to resist superiority. Proverbs 11, verse 12 says, Whoever derides their neighbor has no sense but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. Now, y'all, I didn't know what deride meant, so I had to look it up, and it means to express contempt. So let's think about that for a second. How does contempt grow in us? Well, contempt grows as we find happiness in someone else's unhappiness. It grows as we roll our eyes at someone, maybe not outwardly, but in our hearts. It grows as we root not for our success, but for someone else's failure. Again, like we saw last week, sin always starts in our hearts. Sin starts as a contemptuous thought. Now, I've told you all before that Kelly was my fifth-grade girlfriend, um, but I, you should just know it wasn't all rainbows and, and roses and trips to Disney World um, until we got married. In fact, there was a long period of time when we weren't together, uh, all through middle school and then the first couple years of high school. I loved her, but, uh, but she, didn't, she didn't, you know, love me back. And uh, uh, in fact, she was crushing on, a, on another boy who will not be named. And, uh, and she was a cheerleader and he played on the basketball team. And so I often went to the basketball games, uh, not to watch basketball, but to watch her cheer. And I can't tell you how happy it would make me if he would miss a three throw or if, uh, if he would make a mistake or if someone would punch him in the face. And I found such happiness in his unhappiness. And even today, if I'm being honest, and y'all, I won, right? I mean, she's about to have my fifth baby, so I won. But even now, there's a part of me that gets a lot of happiness from his failures. Now, that's a sin, and I've confessed it to God, and he's working on my heart. But that's contempt. That's what we're talking about. And when we find ourselves in a broken relationship, when we realize that our natural bent is always contempt... Sometimes, without even realizing it, we realize that we're rooting for other people's failure. Because somehow their failure convinces us that we're okay. Now this is what cartoonists do so well. And you can always tell when a cartoonist really dislikes a politician or a celebrity. Because what do they do? They take the most unattractive feature of someone and they make it enormous. Right, So if, if you're a person who has kind of big ears, they kind of stick out, they draw you with, with ears that look like Dumbo. Or uh, if you're a person who has a larger nose, uh, maybe they draw you with, with a nose that looks like Pinocchio when he's told a lie or you know, when he reads the transcripts from the debates. Like that, that is, that's what cartoonists do. They take what is, what is most unattractive and then they define the person by that unattractive feature. Now when someone wrongs us, Our hearts, which are bent towards contempt, takes that one thing the person has done, and then we see them through that one action. If they lied to us, then all of a sudden, they become a liar, right? That's just who they are, they are a liar. Now, if we tell a lie, it's different, because we're complex, right? There's another side to our story. It's not so black and white. We're multifaceted. In order for you to understand whether or not I'm a liar, you really need to ask me some questions and get to know my story, but not then. See, they become only their most unattractive feature to us. So, what's the result of all this? Well, because of our contemptuous heart, when we distort the image of the person who's wronged us into their most unattractive feature we also distort the view we have of ourselves. We exaggerate our righteousness. When we exaggerate our righteousness and turn someone else into their sin, we lose touch with who they are and who we are, and we develop an ear of superiority. You cannot stay angry at someone unless you feel superior to them. We hold people in contempt because we believe, I would never do that. So, the first step. And repairing any relationship is to realize that that's where your heart's going to go. That you're going to immediately elevate your own righteousness and you're going to turn them into whatever thing they did wrong. So step one is to say, I could do that. I'm no better than that. And as I was thinking about that, I realized that point like really hit me about ten years ago um, when I was watching a, Mon- a Monique a stand-up special. Uh, I don't know if you know who Monique is, but she is a- an actress and a comedian, and uh, and she was uh, doing a stand-up routine in a women's prison. Um, I wasn't there, but I saw it on TV, and it was uh, it-, it was an interesting. Um, Special because they they showed, before they did the stand-up, before she did her stand-up, they showed her interacting with the inmates and, and talking to them and hearing their stories. There was lots of hugs. And she kept saying to each one of them, you may feel like the world has thrown you away. You may feel like you are trash, but that's not the way I see you. And then her whole stand-up routine was built around saying this saying over and over again. She kept saying over and over again, I could have been your cellmate. I could have been your cellmate. See, we're all only one bad decision away. My mentor Steve Brown says, we are very good lawyers when it comes to our own mistakes. But when it comes to the mistakes of others, we become very good judges. So the first step in repairing any relationship is to admit that we have a heart problem, that our natural bent is contempt, and that we have to fight like crazy to resist superiority. And really, this has has huge implications. I mean, this really is is how racism begins, right? It begins with someone being wronged by someone, and then you turning that person from a complex individual into, into that one particular act And then you start seeing them like that, and then you start seeing everyone who they're associated with. Whatever group they're a part of, you you turn that whole group into that. So this has implications that that we have to address. We have to start by realizing that that's what we're going to naturally do unless we stop it. Unless we resist superiority. Secondly, we we must release from liability. Proverbs 17.9 says, "...whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends." When we see cover over, it might seem like the Bible's telling us that we're supposed to to, to cover up someone's sin. But like we saw last week in Proverbs 27.5-6, "...better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy's kisses multiply." And we saw that the most unloving thing that any of us can do for one another is to let each other keep doing wrong. That in fact, to not confront someone's sin because we're worried that the truth will hurt their feelings is just as bad as Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. And so that can't be what it's teaching. It's not teaching that we're supposed to cover up someone's sin. But let's look at the second part of the verse. It says, Whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. The key word is repeats. When we repeat, what we're doing is, is we keep bringing up that particular sin over and over again. So what's happening there? Well, we're holding a grudge. Are there any grudges that you're holding right now? Are there any, uh, any situations or, or anything that someone's done to you uh, that you just keep replaying in your mind? You keep telling yourself over and over again what she did or he did. Do you think about it all the time? To allow that memory to indulge in, like the fantasy of replaying what happened, that's repeating the matter. And what happens when we do that is we begin to develop a heart that's rooting for them to fail. Our happiness becomes tied to their unhappiness. And so maybe we start to gossip about them, maybe we slander them, we start repeating their sins to others, causing division. Repetition of other people's sins unravels community. So how do, we, how do we cover over a sin? We stop repeating it. Because the only reason we're repeating it is because we're trying to exact a cost. We're trying to settle a debt. The reason we bring someone's sin up over and over again is to try to balance the scales. That's why when we see something go wrong in their life, we feel a little bit better. Like if a a girl breaks your heart, and then all of a sudden her heart's broken, you feel a little better. Or if someone that you work with, if if he kind of manipulated or or used you to get ahead, and then all of a sudden he loses your job, all of a sudden you feel a little better. Why? Because you feel like you're balancing the scales. You feel like whatever he owes you is a little less because of his suffering. See, if, if we can hurt them, or if they can be hurt, we can start to feel a little bit better because we're exacting the cost. So what does it mean to cover over an offense? Well, instead of splitting the bill, you pay it. We've talked about this a lot. In forgiveness, someone always pays. It's just not the debtor. Forgiveness doesn't remove the offense. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't cover it up. It covers it. Forgiveness means that the one who was owed, the one who was hurt, pays. If you've ever been forgiven, by someone. Um, Even if you tried to pay them back, the one who forgave you paid the greater debt always. That's why forgiveness is so hard. That's why forgiveness is awful for the one doing the forgiving. That's why forgiveness can't be about a feeling. You can't wait to feel forgiveness. You have to act first. It's a decision first. You first do forgiveness, and then eventually you feel forgiveness. Um, Y'all know I'm am a big huge fan of Hamilton, the the musical, and uh, about a month ago I got uh, to go see it. I was in New York City and I got tickets, and um, it's a long story. But if you're going to New York anytime soon and you want to know my method and how I got them, I'd be happy to tell you. But I'm not going to waste everyone's time here. But it was worth it, and, and you should go see it. Uh, but but anyways, the musical Hamilton is of course based on real life. It's based on our American history. It's based on our founding fathers. In particular, the $10 founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. All right, that was dumb, but yeah, thank you, thank you. If you knew how much time I worked on nailing that instead of reading Scripture, you would be mortified. Uh, But most of the content for this show came from a 700-page biography of Alexander Hamilton, which I just finished, Um, and it's great. And in fact, the the musical actually stays very close to history. But if you don't know much about Hamilton, Hamilton was our first Treasury Secretary. Uh, Most of the economics of our country were put in place by him. He was a, a brilliant man, a brilliant thinker, a brilliant politician. And he was also involved in America's first sex scandal. And the reason, uh, we, the reason it became known was because he himself put a pamphlet out describing it in great detail. Now, the reason he did this was um, to protect or, or to, to save his name, his political name, uh, which I know seems crazy and I don't have a lot of time to go into that. But I tell you that because I want you to know something about his wife, Eliza. Eliza was often called by Hamilton the best of wives and the best of women. And the more I've read about her, the more I've gotten to know who she was, she really was. And Eliza forgave Hamilton. I mean, not only did he have an affair, but he made it public because he worried more about his job than what the effect it would have on his family. I mean, it's outrageous what he did. But there's this, there's this song towards the end of the show that's called It's Quiet Uptown. And the song occurs after the aftermath of the, uh, the affair being made public. And also after Eliza and Alexander have buried their eldest son who was 19, uh, he died in a duel defending his father's honor. Uh, And so it's just devastating. It's like it's a devastating moment in their story, and their life. Um, And in this song they keep talking about the unimaginable. The the unimaginable pain of, of bearing a child and the unimaginable pain caused by an affair. And it just it goes on and on and on. And, and if you've been through either of those, you know, like it is an unimaginable pain. And, and after the song explores that kind of grief, it concludes with these lyrics. There are moments that the words don't reach. There's a grace too powerful to name. We push away what we can never understand. We push away the unimaginable. They are standing in the garden. Alexander by Eliza's side. She takes his hand. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? Gosh. All right. When I heard that the first time, I started getting teary-eyed, and I'm getting teary-eyed again. But uh, I I knew this going into the show, and I knew I needed to brace myself for this moment because I didn't want to make a scene. And... um, And I'm sitting there, and and as as clearly as those lyrics paint a picture of forgiveness, I had no idea how profound it would be to see it. Because as the song is going on, you see a very stoic Eliza. And she's standing there, and she softens just ever so slightly right before she takes his hand. And when she takes his hand, he crumbles. He just begins weeping. He He begins crying. And then she slowly and very carefully places her head on his shoulder, hand in hand. Now, Alexander is weeping because he's being set free. He's weeping because there's been this huge weight that has been lifted. He's being released of liability. But what I found so mesmerizing in this moment was Eliza. Because Eliza stayed pretty still. And in that moment, I saw Eliza absorb the cost. Alexander was being set free, but Eliza was paying. Best of wives, best of women. And and because she did that, that one act of forgiveness led to a love for her husband that turned them into one of the truly great love stories. She lived 50 years after Hamilton died in a duel with Aaron Burr and she spent the rest of her life trying to tell a story. She would meet with anyone who had any kind of connection with him, with anyone who fought alongside him in the Revolutionary War. She wanted to gather as much about him because she didn't want us to not know his contribution to the founding of our country. She worked tirelessly to continue his work. She had like seven kids that she raised by herself, but she continued to, work, to do work to try to uh, get rid of slavery. She also started an orphanage because her Hamilton was an orphan. And at the end of her life, uh, people will often come to tour her house. And she loved to give tours of her house. She loved to show memorabilia from the founding of our country. And one visitor to her house wrote about that visit. And he wrote about how he would never forget the marble bust of Hamilton that was placed in the the corner of the foyer. And he, he wrote this. He said, the old lady always paused before it and In the tour of rooms, and leaning on her cane, gazed and gazed at him as if she could never be satisfied. See, that forgiveness led to a life of love that survived 50 years beyond the marriage itself. Do you know how to forgive someone? Do you know how to release them from liability? Well, it starts by not repeating. By making a promise, I'm not going to bring this up again. I'm not going to bring it up to them again. I'm not going to bring it up to other people. And maybe more importantly, I'm not going to keep bringing it up to myself again and again and again. And if you can do that, you're on your way to forgiveness. So to repair a broken relationship, we have to first start by resisting superiority. We've got to realize that that I could do that. Secondly, we have to release from liability. We have to realize that in order to forgive, we have to absorb the cost. And lastly, we repay evil with good. Proverbs 25, 21-22 says this, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Alright, don't think too much about the burning coals on his head part right now. We'll come back to that. Uh, but let's just, let's just look at the first part of the verse. And this, this first part is actually quoted by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Romans 12. And it, like forgiveness, is a very difficult ask. Because it's one thing to say, I don't find my happiness in someone else's unhappiness. I, I'm not going to root for someone else's failure. But it's another thing to say, I'm going to repay their evil with good. So, if our response is, listen, I won't wish ill for them, but I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm not going to care about them. I don't want to see them. We actually haven't done what God has asked of us. This proverb is essentially telling us that what is required is that we hurt more for them than we were hurt by them. We were hurt more for them than we were hurt by them. Now, there's no way we can do that if we feel superior to them, if we think we would never do what they did. There's no way we could do that if we keep trying to exact the cost, if we keep trying to make them pay. There's a story of of an old holy man who, while meditating by the countryside, noticed a a scorpion stuck in a little whirlpool in a a bit of water. And and, and the scorpion kept trying to climb onto this rock, but the the current was too strong, and and he failed over and over again. And, And the holy man, looking down at the scorpion, felt compassion for him and and tried to scoop him up, but of course the scorpion kept attacking him and trying to sting him. And a friend passing by said to the holy man, don't you realize that it's the nature of a scorpion to attack and sting? And the holy man replied, yes, but it's my nature to save and rescue. Why would I change my nature just because the scorpion won't change his? Listen, if you're a Christian, you have been made like that holy man. It is now your nature to save and to rescue. You have been given a new nature. You have been given a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If they change or not, that's not up to you. You've been changed. And relational repair starts with you, not them. You are called to resist superiority. You are called to release liability. You are called to repay evil with good. Resist, release, repay. Okay, so what about the heaping coals? Well, when the Apostle Paul quotes this Proverbs, um, this Proverb, and, and whenever we're reading the Old Testament, we have to read it in light of the New Testament. But when he quotes This proverb, he says this before it. He says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. That's Romans twelve nineteen. Now when you and I, when we don't take the steps of repairing a relationship, when we say, No, we're not, we're not gonna resist superiority. We're not going to release from liability. We're not going to repay evil with good. We're going to choose to hold a grudge. We're going to choose to repeat someone's offenses. What we are essentially saying is that we should be in God's place. We're saying, I know, I know what this person deserves. But do we? Do any of us really know what someone else deserves? Do any of us really know someone's entire story? Do we know what their childhood was like? Do we know uh, what their circumstances were? Do we know uh, how hard they fought against making that really bad decision that hurt us? And do we know how that bad decision has ravaged their hearts since then? No, we don't know. Only God knows that. God is the only one who knows what we truly deserve and it's only him who can give it. So what does he do? What, what, is, what is the way in which God repays? Well, God chose to resist superiority. In Philippians 2, it says, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God chose to release us from liability. Romans 4 says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. And God chose to repay evil with good. Luke 23, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, if he's the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which reads, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. This is God's word. So what happened there? Well, he took the heaping burning coals. He took the wrath. He repaid our evil with his good. Listen, repairing relationships is awful and it's hard. Forgiveness is always awful for the one who's doing forgiving. Look at the cross. But why did Jesus choose it then? Because relationships matter. On the cross, Jesus chose relationship. No matter how hard it was, he says, I'm going to choose relationship. And he didn't just choose relationship. He chose relationship with you. Have you chosen relationship with him? The writer of, the Hebrews, uh, of Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. That means the thought of relationship with you was enough for Jesus to endure the awful. I don't want to end this series on how to make a friend without making it so clear that Jesus wants to be our friend. That if you've never felt like that Jesus mattered or Jesus cared about you, I want you to know he does. And I don't want to end this series without all of us feeling the responsibility to go out and repair relationships no matter the cost. Because listen, I know maybe, maybe the relationship doesn't seem worth it at all. But when God tells us to forgive one another, he's telling us to do that knowing exactly what he's asking of us. And he also knows the joy on the other side of the awful. Let's pray. Father God, I, uh, I thank you that in Jesus there's hope for restoration. That in Jesus we have a friend who knows how awful it can be to to carry the cost. And, uh, and we thank you that because he did that, we are invited into it knowing that there's joy on the other side of it. That no matter how hard or painful the process is, there's a hope that we have. There's, there's the hope that you had. There's a joy that exists on the other side of the awful. And so, Father, I don't know what each of us need to do next. I don't know uh, where there's brokenness in our own relationships. I don't know what that looks like for each of us. But I know that it's what you've called us to. That if, if we have, have been saved by you, that you have called us to be people who restore relationships. And so, Jesus, go before us and show us how to do it. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen.
1: So we're going to conclude our service uh, together today, taking communion, remembering uh, the, the extent uh, that Jesus went through so that we could be in right relationship with the Father. We're gonna remember that sacrifice because it is by uh, that sacrifice, by that forgiveness uh, that went ahead of restored relationship that gives us uh, the strength and, and maybe even the courage uh, to, engage, to to be that um, for our relationships in our world. The way that we take uh, communion here is by intention, which means as, uh, when, when the music begins, at, at whatever point, um, you're ready. You I can mean, come forward and, and take communion. You'll take a piece of the bread and the person serving will say the body of Christ broken for you and then you will dip the bread in the wine or the grape juice and they'll say the blood of Christ shed for you and they'll say those things because they're true communion is available uh, to anyone in this room who's a follower of Jesus whether or not some is your church home or not and if today is the first day where really all those pieces uh, got put together for you where you you realized uh, the extent that Jesus went through um, to be in relationship with you um, and, uh, and you, and you want to be in relationship with him today, taking communion uh, may be your first step um, in that. But take a moment uh, as the music begins, and then when you're ready, you can come forward and take communion.